that the skinny one? Yeah, so switch to two. Switch okay. to two. There you go. So then, so, um... I don't like the red thing. I mean, it, it, I mean, it, it, well, the red, it shows you when it's supposed to be in focus, but it's not perfectly, like, believable. Like, that's pretty good. Yeah. Okay. So I usually try to focus it in switch. Okay. Thank you. Yep. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'll just be right here for the most part. Okay.
song it's not always um, as commonly used for communion but I think um, it exemplifies that Christ had a God had a plan for us for our salvation it wasn't it wasn't you know random what happened so we believe that communion is done in remembrance of Christ's sacrifice on the cross for us 
that kind of grace, that kind of love doesn't seem wise. It doesn't seem smart to us. We, we, we can't imagine ourselves doing that sometimes, but I think that's why I like this song to kind of exemplify it is because it seemed reckless, but it wasn't. It was planned. God knew what he was doing the whole time. So we're going to sing this song. And so while we're singing, if you want to take communion or just pray, just do whatever you need to.
Don't shadow you, won't light up Mountain you won't climb up Coming after me There's no wall you won't kick down A lie you won't tear down Coming after me There's no shadow you won't light up No mountain you won't climb up Coming after me No song um, it's called abide and so it's just speaking of our reliance on Christ for everything it reminds me of um, the Lord's supper or the Lord's prayer in that it's asking and just knowing that everything that we have comes from Christ and just that we should be praying for all things to come from him I'm fine. 
Father, I just pray that for all of us in this room, that that would be our prayer, that we would yearn for you to teach us to abide in you, God. And we know that everything comes from you. For the victories that we don't yet have, to the battles that we don't know are coming, God, we know that we can trust in you, to stay in you, abide in you, and you will be there and you will provide for us, God. Just know that you will take care of us. Be the loving father that you always have been. All right, in your son's name, we pray all this in amen. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. all right, all the kids can go on back and everybody can have a seat. Or say hi to your neighbor if you see someone you haven't met yet. Introduce yourself. Welcome church, happy Sunday. How's everybody doing? I uh, just went to make my way up here and forgot my microphone, so hopefully you're doing better than me. But I'm glad you're here, we're all glad you're here. Uh, we, we just, we, we love this, we, we live for this. I mean, we get together Wednesdays and talk about the week that was and we look forward to the week that's coming. So we're just so glad to see you guys here. If you're new, Welcome, welcome to those of you online as well. If you are new, we'd love to connect with you. Stop by our Connect Center, fill out a card, get a free mug, it's that simple. Um, I have a couple announcements. You can scan those QR codes, it's right 
there. Now, okay, moving on. It's actually here. Um, you can follow along for the announcements there. First announcement, leadership retreat. It is August 27th, it's 8.30 to 1 p.m. And this week, or this year, we're gonna have Robbie McAllister. Uh, he's an experienced pastor, experienced missions leader. He's gonna bring energy, excitement. He's gonna talk through all of these things and you can join us at the Park of Roses Shelter. And again, that's 8.30 to 1 p.m. But what we need you to do, if you are coming, and we'd love for you to come, is please, please, please RSVP by this Wednesday, August 24th. Next, we have a women's fitness ministry Bible study that starts on September 7th. They're going to use a book. This study is gonna be anchored in this book called Breaking Free from Body Shame. It's by Jess Connolly. And through that, the women are going to dig into God's word using their own stories and, and learn how to celebrate who God has created them to be, knowing that they are made in the image of God and that they're inherently worth uh, taking the look at themselves and, and, and figuring things out and, and working through those things. And so some of the topics will be kingdom body mindset, renaming your body as good, resting from striving in your body, restoration through worship, so on and so forth. The start date will be Wednesday, September 7th. It will be bi-weekly, and it will meet from 6.30 to 8.30 until November 2nd. Um, the, the information, if you need more information, again, if you scan this QR code here or that QR code there, now. You know, it never works when the light, when I want the light to go from green to red either, so I don't know why I thought it would work. But there's two emails that you can reach out to Hannah uh, or Casey, and, and they'll be able to get you more information. So uh, the last couple of weeks, we've had some significant events in the life of our church. Two uh, that we want to talk about today is Love Our City, as well as um, Discover Life. So Pastor Mike Failer is going to make his way up to talk about Discover Life. And as he does, I just wanted to give you a brief update on Love Our City. Uh, as you know, we had many opportunities to partner with churches in a three-mile radius around our church to provide acts of service, cleaning things up around the community, or just welcoming students that are international. Uh, you guys showed up and did a great job. There will be a ton more information along with pictures in the uh, monthly newsletter. But I just wanted to say, give yourselves a hand, acknowledge yourselves. I mean, we are literally becoming the hands and feet. It's going from head to heart to hands. And so one of the ways that we can do that is through Love Our City. So you guys should be proud of yourselves and I'm, I'm proud to serve alongside of you. So here is Pastor Mike to talk about Discover Life. Good morning, everybody. This is the fourth year we've done Discover Life and, um, but it's an annual outreach we do. If you're new with us, here's what we do. We start the evening with a really nice meal we show an alpha video and then afterwards have a discussion. Alpha videos are designed to introduce people to Jesus Christ. This year we had about 40 people from Linworth that were involved. And just very quickly here, if you helped out with the preparation of the food or the planning of the food or serving the food, would you just stand up real quick? Would you stand up? And if you helped out in childcare, stand up, please. Thank you. And if you helped out by being at a table to lead or support discussion at the table, would you please stand up? All those people. 
This is the church partnering together in the gospel. And I just want to give a very special thanks to Lori Four and Kelly Failer, my wife. They oversaw all the food preparation and the kitchen help, and the meals were just excellent. Just excellent meals. Also, give a special thanks to Dale Schuler and his administration. But you know, of course, nothing happens unless we pray and invite people. And this year we had 14 invited guests come. That's a little less than we've had in the past, but nevertheless, 14 people whom God loves so very much and who are so special to God. And all of you who prayed and invited people, whether they came or not, I want you to know God heard those prayers and he's at work in people's lives. And those who came, they experienced the love of God. They heard truth. They heard the gospel. And we praise God for that because the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And then something special this year. We have a group that's continuing on, led by Scott Nishisaki. And in that group, there are two invited friends who came all three weeks, and they're continuing on and uh, they're going to, their goal is to go through the rest of the Alpha videos. So God is working. And I just want to thank everyone for your partnership in the gospel and praise God for what he has done. And uh, now we're going to continue in our current series. We're going to ask Pastor Chris to come up in our current series, Wait, that's in the Bible. <laughs> Mike, good morning. You all survived the storm last night, obviously. I guess if somebody's not here, they did not survive it. <laughs> well, as Mike said, we're in a series called, wait, that's in the Bible? And we are looking at passages, parts of the Bible, when viewed through our 21st century lens that confuse us or can even jar us. The parts of the, these parts of the Bible have come under quite a bit of scrutiny lately. And we've been learning how important it is to read the Bible in its context, to get the backstory, to read it as one united story that points to Jesus. Not only does that help us grasp the Bible's meaning, it is also needed for intellectual integrity. What I mean is that every historical text should be read in a way that is fair to the text itself. In a, in a paired way, friends, we are simply learning to do the work of a good historian. And by looking at the questions we are as a byproduct, we are learning how to read the Bible. Now, maybe the last couple of weeks, it has felt academic or maybe even overwhelming. And indeed, as I thought about the last couple of messages, you know, in the past, we might have reserved this kind of material for a class or for a workshop, but no longer do we have that option, I believe. We need to reach as many of you as possible because we do believe the Bible is God's word. And let me just say this, uh, let me be unambiguous. We believe the Bible is our authority for what we believe and for what we do. 
You know, once that foundation is gone, what do we have left? I mean, why follow Jesus? I mean, the Bible is not simply a good rule book or chicken soup for the soul. If it is not true, why seek to live it out? You know, in the last decade, most of us likely know a former Christian who deconstructed and then abandoned their faith. And in part because they cannot account for some of these things in the Bible that felt strange to them. Or because some of the things said in the Bible are not in step with our culture's vision of progress. So, where are we going to go today? We're going to hit on a new concern. And to introduce it, turn to Genesis chapter 30, verse 3. I don't know the page number, but it's something like two or three. (laughs) Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, chapter 30, verse 3. And as you're turning there, let me paint the picture. This story, we are, in this story, we are two generations down from Abraham. Now, this is the same Abraham, highly regarded by Jews and Christians and Muslims. Abraham's grandson is Jacob, and one of Jacob's wives, Rachel, is speaking to Jacob, complaining, actually. She's not been able to get pregnant, and she's blaming him. Now, Jacob's not been trained in active listening. <laughs> Nor is he very empathetic. He gets upset with her, saying in so many words, What can I do? I am not God. So Rachel, in a fit of desperation, concocts a plan to ensure she gets credit for children. Now verse 3. So she said, Here is my maid Bilhah. Go into her, and she will bear a child on my knees, that I also may have children by her. Okay, did you catch that? She's giving Jacob her husband, her personal maid, so she can have progeny accounted to her. Now, this was not strange in their world. This was not an uncommon practice in the near Uh, the Near Eastern ancient world to provide a substitute or to provide a second, so to speak, who can step in so that in this case, Rachel could have children, so to speak. Remember, childlessness was a great source of shame. One's glory and future was so wrapped up with physical descendants. So this is her plan. Now, Just in case you think that's a one-off, let's read on. A little later, Jacob's other wife, another problem, Leah, who does have a few kids, but then she gets frustrated when she too uh, stops conceiving. Verse 9. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob as wife. All right. Now, this offends our modern sensibilities on multiple levels, right? Not only Jacob having multiple wives, but his wives surrendering their maids to have sex with their husbands to father children. I mean, what's up with this? This is messed up. What about the rights and the dignity of these maids? These scriptures, if you do not know it already, are loosely tied 
and something of an inspiration for what was an Emmy award-winning show on Hulu called The Hands Made Tale. See if you have those images. You might have seen such. You might have watched the show. This show was based on a, a novel by a Canadian author named Martha, Martha Atwood. And this is how her dystopian novel begins. Quote, the president and the, uh, about, let me say this. She's Canadian, but she is offering this dystopian novel is about a reimagined America. The president and the Congress have been assassinated by right-wing religious fanatics who have overthrown the government and set up a mono-theocratic dictatorship based on biblical principles in a land they now call Gilead. That's a city in the Bible. Women may no longer possess jobs or property or money of any kind. Pollution has sharply reduced fertility and certain women selected for their ability to breed have become slaves, handmaids, forced to try to conceive through joyous copulation in a bizarre, I'll just say, household of three with their commanders and their commanders' barren wives. Close quote. So America, in Atwood's tale, has gone through something like an Islamic revolution, but Islam is not the source of the provocation. It comes at the hands of a pseudo-Christian sect called, wait for it, Sons of Jacob. Thus the loose tie to Genesis 30. Now TV shows like this beg the question, is the Bible anti-women? Memes, TV shows, and really smart people make the claim that without a doubt, it's 100% certain, it's virtually dogma that the Bible is anti-women. During the recent abortion protest over the Supreme Court rulings, we read it all over placards during that debate. Certainly the Bible teaches that women should be put in their place, right? Not so fast, not so fast. Is this really the case? Is the Bible truly patriarchal? Well, this morning, we're gonna talk about gender relationships because this is what this question is really all about. It's about the relationship between men and women, and we're going to take a 30,000 big picture view of it this morning. Here is the outline, if you wanna write this down, it will help you to follow along. First point is gender relationships the ideal. Second is gender relationships the fall. And then thirdly, gender relationships the restoration, okay? the ideal, the fall, and the restoration of gender relationships. Now, before I pray and launch into that first point, I just wanna say this again that we, Rich and Nick covered last week. Remember, whenever we read something troubling to us, what question do we need to ask? We need to ask, where are we in the Bible storyline, right? As we've been saying, to do justice to the Bible as we would any historical book, we just can't pick it up and pull out one verse in the middle. We have to understand the beginning, the backstory. We have to understand where it's going and how it ends. 
We can't make sense of a single verse without possessing some understanding of the whole and how the pieces fit together. And here's the reality about the Bible. The Bible does not read mechanically in the sense that we are constantly reminded and told every time which behaviors are right and which behaviors are wrong. The biblical authors do not make moral judgments like checking a box on every character or on every action. On occasion they do, but not every time. And why is that? Well, one, the absence of a moral judgment invites you to the reader to think more deeply and engage the text. You're invited to read and reflect on it. It's meant for that. And secondly, the biblical authors assume we will read the Bible as a whole. So for example, when we read about Jacob having multiple wives, the writer assumes you have read the beginning of the book and that you are aware that something about Jacob's and Rachel's action do not fit God's intent. Now, Rich and Nick have both talked about that Bible storyline. And here we can see, we get a sense of where we are in this particular story in Genesis 30, of where we are in that storyline. But let's go on. Let's go on and let's begin now under this first idea of gender relationships, the ideal. And again, turn your Bibles to page one, Genesis one, verses 27 and 28. Verses 27 and 28. This is gender relationships, the ideal. We're going to start with the storyline of the Bible that begins with creation. And God has just created the physical world. And now he turns his attention to the crown jewel of his creation. Verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Male and female, right? Created in his image. Each gender reflecting his image. And we see them here together. They are co-regents over the Garden of Eden. The earth is their playground. They subdue it together. They rule over the creatures together. They share the same worth, the same value. There is equality. There is no strife or division between them. Now, indeed, if we're really paying attention to details, we do see in these first few chapters that there are multiple whispers, okay, of Adam having the responsibility and the blessing of a unique servant leadership role. But even with that distinction in God's economy of values, maybe not ours, but in God's economy of values, it poses no threat to their equality. Now, this special creation of the first man and woman is quite remarkable, and it answers one of our greatest questions today. Who am I? You know, as an aside, humanistic evolution can provide no satisfying answer to that question. 
of who am I? This special creation of human beings differentiates me and you from every other thing. Suddenly, we have value. Special creation differentiates the man and the woman. They are separate yet related because of their common being. She was created by God yet taken from Adam's rib. You know, all of these details matter, by the way. They point to the life-shaping patterns that inform marriages and families and societies. Their separation, along with their common connection, makes love possible. Because there is another, it makes love possible. Francis Schaeffer wrote that we can be thankful for being made in the image of God, saying, for it gives us an intellectual, emotional, and psychological basis for understanding who I am. Now, the man and the woman not only shared equality in their being, but they shared something even more profound. Look at Genesis chapter 2, probably the page over. Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 and 25. This is where God presents Eve to Adam. You know, one of the weddings, one of the delightful weddings, one of the most delightful weddings that I've ever done this summer, when the bride was presented to the groom, just as she was preparing to walk down the aisle, the groom took a look at her and said, loud enough for those of us around him and in the front rows, he looked at her and he said, oh man, It's beautiful. This is what Adam is saying here in chapter 2. When God presents Eve to him, he says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. You are my perfect counterpart. You were made for me, and I was made for you. Verse 24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, innocent, and they felt no shame. First marriage, right? First marriage. Two separate, differentiated individuals, not only equals, but now becoming one in purpose and spirit, one emotionally and physically, breaking all mathematical logic. I love to say it in my weddings. One plus one does not equal two in this case, but one plus one equals one. This was God's pattern from the beginning. Notice, no multiple wives. No sharing of handmaids. Mutual, exclusive love expressed physically, emotionally, and sexually between one man and one woman. This is gender relationships in the ideal, what they were supposed to be, okay? But as we've been learning, but we're applying here, we, again, we, we're repeating some things here between the series, but we're applying it this morning to gender relationships. Now look at chapter 3. Nick mentioned this, that in chapter 3, there is the fall from innocence. Adam and Eve rebel against God. They put themselves, in a sense, over God. They question him. They fall, 
And they also fall from that sacred place of equality and oneness. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. And again, remember now, Adam and Eve, it wasn't just eating an apple. They have done violence. And they have polluted God's special creation and God's special world. And they are now cursed. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will make, you, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will go give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. Now, again, as an aside here, it should be noted that both the man and the woman are found guilty here. Both are found guilty. Yet in Romans chapter 5, we understand that uh, Adam, again, given his role, given his role in the garden, he also is the one who the guilt begins. The first guilt begins with him. Okay, now because of our limited time, I want to focus on the phrase that is part of the woman's curse, okay? It says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. What does that mean? Now, most have thought this verse suggests that the woman will try to reverse roles in the home and take that leadership initiative away from the husband, and certainly that can happen. But I don't think that's the meaning of this verse. I think a more plain, simple reading, along with comparing uh, where this word desire shows up in other places where this word shows up in Genesis, I think there's a more simple, plain meaning to this. When it speaks of her desire, it is, of course, a desire that is twisted, right? It's cursed. I think what it's pointing to is this, that the woman will have an unhealthy desire for, an unhealthy dependence clinging to her husband, and she will look to him to give to her what only God can give. Now, for the husband's part, he will rule over you. Again, this is a curse, so this is not good. This is twisted. This is not the supportive servant leadership that's hinted at in chapters 1 and 2, but it is a domineering patriarchal leadership by men that subjects and demeans women. Now, I'm not a historian, though I have read a lot of history. And I stayed at a Holiday Inn last night. <laughs> not really. But it is true that when, when we watch Jeopardy at home, I'm, I'm always assigned to be the one to get the history questions. Now, notwithstanding my amateur historian status, I ask you, to not only look at the most recent sliver of time, but when you look over the whole course of human history, do we not see this curse worked out? Whether it's a Christian or non-Christian or whatever religious or pagan culture it is, do we not see this curse actually worked out through history? You see, thus the fall and human rebellion had a devastating effect on men and women, the relationship between them. The perfect dance that God had envisioned 
between partners with roles that complete them as perfect counterparts, experiencing oneness, managing their little place in the garden does not look at all like a dance now, does it? When we look around our world to see the condition of gender relationships, what we see now is more likely disjointed, barely coordinated movements to a discordant notes from an off-tuned piano. Betrayal, broken promises, adultery, bitterness, rage, jealousy, domination, silence, withdrawal, passive-aggressive behaviors, idolatry, have defaced and done violence to the image of God within gender relationships. These are gender relationships in the fall. So ideal, gender relationships in the fall, and we can all say that we're thankful that the Bible story does not end there. Restoration begins not just off into the future, but restoration began on a certain moment in time at a certain event. The counter-revolution, the restoration began at the coming of Jesus and the preaching of the kingdom of God. And as to gender and marriage returning to the ideal, let's go to his actual words. And along the way, we'll gain some insight as we look at his words at how God has worked with his fallen people through the centuries. So turn to Matthew chapter 19. And I believe that to be page uh, 8, 7, or 8, um, 24 in the Bibles there at your seats. Like today, marriages and divorce was a mess in this day as well. So some Pharisees came to test Jesus and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Which was the, what some are teaching. The no-fault divorce, basically. Haven't you read, Jesus replied, look at what he does. Look at what he does. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, as we say at the end of our wedding ceremonies, let no, let no one separate. How does Jesus address the question about divorce? By going back to the beginning, by going back to what God intended. He clearly defines marriage as between one man and one woman, two people of equal worth, of equal value, not multiple people becoming one flesh. This standard will be carried out through into the New Testament. What is happening here? Jesus is moving the direction of gender and marriage back towards, rest, or towards restoration, back to the ideal. 
and he removes any lingering doubts about whether God endorses polygamous marriage or having concubines, etc., etc. But then why, you ask? Why, why, why? Why did God allow Solomon to have a thousand wives? And why did God allow David to keep a harem of concubines with barely a word said about it in the Bible? He did, yes, didn't he? He did allow that. But if we're careful readers, right, we recognize that the Old Testament authors showed us subtly that things did not go very well for them because of those decisions. There were actually disastrous consequences. But what was subtle then is now made crystal clear in the words of Jesus. Let's read on. Again, they're sort of stumped by this. And maybe you, maybe you are. They're stumped. They say, well, why then, Jesus? Why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not that way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone, and look at what he does to the standard here. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, and they were being divorced for all kinds of worthless reasons, except for sexual immorality, the breaking of the vows themselves, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Well, that's important words. Now, as an aside, as an aside, let me say this. Just in case you're wondering, this law regarding sending your wife away was not some sort of punishment. It was there to protect the woman in a rigidly patriarchal world. As were many of the Old Testament laws that on the surface appeared to be against women. And again, people without the backstory can quite easily cherry-pick verses to create intellectually dishonest memes, etc. All making it appear that God endorses rape or violence towards women. Friends, it just simply is not true. It is not the case. Remember, never read just a single verse. We must read in context. We must read the storyline or within the storyline. But why did God permit divorce then, you might ask? Why didn't God bring instant judgment? Well, we see something here about God, don't we? We see something. He is working within these cultures, and they are surrounded, and they are sadly, even the people of God are sadly influenced by the brutal realities of the ancient Near East, and so God permits divorce reluctantly because he's seeking to prevent worse things from happening. And but you but you think, well, wait a minute, isn't that isn't that compromising God's holiness? No. Because in his compassion, God works with us where we are, and yet at the same time, he is moving his people back towards the beginning. His pattern, his intent, his will. He has a plan, friends. 
He has a plan and he's working it. This is how Dan Kimball said it. And, you know, by the way, grasping this will help you understand the relationship between the Old and the New Testament. It will help you to answer the questions of a critic without embarrassment or shame. Or it will help you to gently aid your non-Christian friend who, who's really trying to sort through these competing narratives. This is what Dan Kimball wrote. Time after time, we find God moving fallen institutions and practices back towards the trajectory he intended in the beginning. For men and women, this means back to the beauty of equality. Jesus brings all people, male and female, into a position of equal value, worth, and significance, breaking down the power divisions and the racial and ethnic divisions as well. Paul's words made this clear that since Jesus came, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You might be asking the question, well, okay, how is this all unfolded then through history? Like, if Jesus is moving and the kingdom of God is growing, how has this actually unfolded through history? Have the life and the words of Jesus actually made a difference in our world? Well, one highly regarded atheist thinks so. Nick uh, quoted Tom Holland, that's not the actor, in week one. Tom Holland is an award-winning historian who wrote a book called Dominion, How Christianity Reshaped the World. I've read the book, it's expansive, it's It's an amazing book of world history. Um, I would encourage you to read it, to give you a sense of how regarded he is. And if if you know where these these magazines and papers stand, you'll see he's well regarded on both sides of the political spectrum. He's been a contributor to The Guardian, The Times of London, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Times. In this book, he argues that Christianity is the single greatest influence in our world. It remade our world, he argued, particularly in the realm of human rights. Here's something he wrote. This is Tom Holland. That every human being possessed an equal dignity was not remotely a self-evident truth. He means in the ancient world. Do you, I hope you, you, you follow that. You see, you woke up this morning and You woke up this morning and you just automatically assumed that every single human being on the face of the earth, regardless of color or wealth or socioeconomic status, you just woke up and believed, hey, it's just, everybody has inherent worth. Everybody has dignity, right? Like nobody has to teach you that. You see it as being self-evident. And what Tom Holland is saying, friends, the world was not always like that. Here's what he said. He said, he said a Roman would have laughed at it, that all people are created with equal worth. To campaign against discrimination on the ground of gender or sexuality, however, was to depend on large numbers of people sharing in a common assumption that everyone possessed an inherent worth. The origins of this principle lay not in the French Revolution, nor in the Declaration of Independence, nor in the Enlightenment, but in the Bible. As examples, Holland cites the Greco-Roman world, 
where men were superior to women and sex was the way to prove it. Holland wrote that to be penetrated, male or female, was to be branded as inferior. In Rome, Holland wrote that men no more hesitated to use slaves and prostitutes to relieve themselves of their sexual needs than they did to use the side of the road as a toilet. Rebecca McLaughlin captured all this in an article um, on the Gospel Coalition website. She wrote this about what Holland is talking about. Christianity throughout this model. Rather than being seen as inferior to men, women were equally made in God's image. Rather than being free to use as slaves and prostitutes of either sex, men were expected to be faithful to one wife or to live in celibate singleness. The scenario described in The Handsmaid Tale, a man sleeping with an enslaved woman, is one of the exact things Christianity outlawed. The Christian husband was to love his wife as Christ loved the church, Ephesians 5.25. The relative weakness of her body was not a license for domination, but a reason to show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, 1 Peter 3.7. This is how Jesus, what Tom Holland observed about world history, is how Jesus, and again, I'm just make sure you understand he's an atheist he is not promoting the Christian faith he is simply observing history but this is how Jesus and the New Testament writers were beginning to move gender relationship to restoration and friends even though you and I we are still in our fallen state right we can still taste the beauty of this today when our relationships are gender relationships, our marriages, our families are led by the Spirit of God and we follow the model that God gave us. And friends, the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, we've covered the Bible today. Chapter 1 to the last chapter. <laughs> Revelation 22 pictures the restoration of the Garden of Eden. In the remade heaven and earth, all will be made new. And the reality of oneness will take a permanent, eternal, unending hold on every son and daughter of God. So, we've talked about gender relationships in the ideal, gender relationships in the fall, and gender relationships in the restoration. Friends, what do we do with all this? Let me give you three brief things here to integrate this into your life. Three things. First, let's go back to the question, is the Bible anti-women? Is the Bible anti-women? Does the Bible give a wink and a nod to men, suggesting they are the greater preferred sex? Absolutely, unequivocally, without shame or embarrassment to that question, we give a resounding no. This is an absolute lie and distortion to the heart of God. If you are a woman, you can celebrate that God is 1,000% for you. If you have thought yourself inferior to men, abandon that thought forever. He loves you enthusiastically, emotionally, and expressively. You are embraced as a daughter of the king and can be heroines in kingdom work, true co-workers, true warriors. 
Dating back to the Old Testament, we could tell the stories of Deborah, Jael, Esther, Miriam. In the New Testament, we could tell the stories of Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, the, the women who traveled with Jesus, Priscilla, Phoebe, Typhrena, and Typhrosia. Now, those last two are unfamiliar names to you. They are in Paul's long list of co-workers in Romans 16 that includes many women. From church history, we could tell the stories of Gladys Allward, Amy Carmichael, Harriet Tubman, Corey Ten Boom, Rosa Parks, our Henrietta Mears. A recent biography of Henrietta Mears was called The Mother of Modern Evangelicalism. Why? Because Henrietta Mears, in her Sunday school class, had a profound effect on two men, Billy Graham and Bill Bright. If you know the names, they are the most influential believers from the West in the 20th century. Henrietta Mears had a profound impact on their lives. So daughters of God, rejoice of who you are. A second application, this one's for all of us. A second way to integrate what we've shared this morning into our lives. Secondly, what we learned today ought to move us, not only intellectually and not only logically, but it ought to move us emotionally, friends. This should move us emotionally. You know, once we see the whole picture, and let me just give this qualifier. I have not watched a single episode of The Hands Made Tale, okay? But I've tried to read enough sources on it and a variety of sources to get some picture of it. But if what I've read is accurate, honestly, it ought to make us angry. It ought to make us angry because it is unjust, friends. It is unjust to cherry pick a certain text, to pull it out of its storyline, have no awareness of the backstory, ignore where the storyline ends, and then assert that God endorses a reimagined world where women are sexually subjugated against their will. I mean, if that's really it, that's wrong. It is so wrong. It is evil. And it is intellectually dishonest. Last week, I wonder what your experience was when watching the clip that Pastor Rich showed us from West Wing. And in that scene, if you were not here, an aide to the president uh, cites an Old Testament verse to speak up against same-sex relationships. Now, the clip was before, the show was before 2013. And to put it in a little context, that the, the rightness or wrongness of same-sex relationships culturally at that point was still an active debate. Well, the president responded by tearing her down by citing verse after verse in rapid machine gun style, quoting the same kinds of verses that we've been looking at the last three weeks, pulling them out of context, ignoring their backstory, and frankly, assuming a cultural superiority that of course we know better. I wonder how you felt when you saw that clip. Maybe you felt embarrassed. Maybe you felt afraid. Maybe you said, I'm never going to speak up. And I'm going to bet that many of you could identify with her. Because I know I could. While I was watching, I was trying to existentially put myself in her place. And I felt fear. And I felt frozen. And I thought, what would I say? 
But after Rich's message, I returned to that same scene again, tried to put myself back in it. And I thought to myself, you know what? I think I know how to respond now. And if Martin Sheen, president, were to ask me those questions or make those accusations to me, I think I would have a few questions to ask back to him. Rich's message, the scriptures, equipped me for knowing how I might respond in that situation. I don't have to feel embarrassed. I don't have to be ashamed. There are answers to these questions. But friends, we must grow in our knowledge. We must grow in our knowledge. And one of the great moments that we are in, in our culture, in this day, in this era, is that we have to learn. We have to keep growing in our knowledge of the scriptures and of who God is. And if we combine knowledge with faith, friends, you'll have the empowerment and the equipping in those situations to speak up and to speak out and not be afraid or ashamed or embarrassed. Because this, this book, I'm telling you, it is so wonderful. It is so, it is so coherent. It is so marvelous in its beauty and dimensions. And we do not need to be embarrassed or ashamed of any piece of it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Lastly, and um, Caleb, you can come, Caleb and uh, Faith, come on up. A last application. I want to speak to the men in the room. Let me speak to the men in the room. You are part of the solution. You participate in helping recapture the ideal. And it's real simple. One, two, three, four, five words. Here it is. Here it is. Ready? It's real simple. Treat women like Jesus did. There's your commission, men. Let him be your example in the treatment of your wife, your daughter, your secretary, your boss, the maid who cleans your hotel room, the older woman who lives next door, the home woman in our church. There we go. Or the single woman in our church. Jesus is the revelation of God that we have. Friends, when I personally look back at the troubling Old Testament verses, I always look through the prism of Jesus, knowing that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. He was God who camped among us, set up his tent among us. After citing multiple gospel stories, and there are so many, so many friends, there are so many beautiful gospel stories of Jesus interacting with women. This is what Rebecca McLaughlin wrote. Whether little girls or prostitutes, whether despised foreigners or women made unclean by menstrual blood, whether they were married or single, sick or disabled, Jesus made time for women and treated them with care and respect. That's your call, men. You're part of the solution. Lastly, men and women, all of us, knowing Jesus, knowing Jesus, being forgiven through his sacrifice on the cross, being empowered through Christ living in us, it'll help us be like him. And then we can begin today in our gender relationships, in our marriages, in our families, in our friendships, in our life groups, we can begin today living life as God intended it to be. Father, in Jesus' name, 
Help us to be responders to your word this morning. Thank you for your word, Lord. It is beautiful. It is glorious. It is relevant. And it's, it doesn't deal with just the niceties of life. It deals with the, and it addresses us in the pain and the sorrow and the brutal realities of life. In our corrupted world, Father, where human beings have done violence to your image, they've done violence to your creation, and we've done violence to your creation, Father. We've done violence to your image. Lord, we deserve hell. We deserve judgment. And yet Jesus Christ became our mediator. He became our mediator. And now we have a promise to stand by a freedom to live by. Help us now, Father, to respond with worship through Christ. Amen. Just join me as we worship.
when Christ shall come with howls of acclamation and take me home what joy shall El Shaddai, part of its meaning is that he is all-sufficient. He's sufficient for whatever you need. This morning we've addressed a, a, a particular unique need of how we think about God, particularly if you're a woman, and, um, uh, and how we interact with others in our culture when, when um, folks assume that the Bible is somehow has a, a bias against women. Um, but this morning, whatever need that exists, God is sufficient for that need. And, and again, maybe some of you as women, maybe this morning, uh, your view of God, you, you recognize it, it, it needs to be reshaped. Maybe you had some assumptions about how God thought of you, uh, either relative to men or relative to others. And maybe your inherent worth, um, your ability to be a co-partner in kingdom work, um, uh, your capacity to, to speak for Christ, to serve Christ. Um, maybe this morning, there's something off there. Something's happened in your experience. You've been hurt in a church, or you've been hurt by a Christian, or you've been hurt maybe in your own family, maybe by your father. And, and somehow that's, that's, that's impacted your view of God. You have a hard time believing he's a thousand percent for you. 
and maybe some of you as, as men this morning, I know it was certainly true in my own life. I had to do some serious repenting and rethinking along the way with my view of women. Um, maybe some of you men still need to grow with that. Maybe your view of who women are has been so influenced by our culture that you, you objectify them like our culture does. You think about them in terms of what you can get. You, uh, you look at them as inferior for some, in some way, psychologically, emotionally. You've got them in some box that's not really biblical-based, but it's cultural-based. You put them in some box, and the women that are close to you can't really breathe. They re can't really live. They don't feel like they can really use their gifts in the kingdom of God. You're kind of holding them back. Maybe you feel threatened by them. Maybe you feel, maybe you're not secure yourself. Again, remember when the fall came, friends, it, it just, it affected our relationships and genders. And God wants to restore us back to the way it was supposed to be. So whether you have needs there or God is speaking there or whether he's speaking in some other place in your life, He's sufficient. El Shaddai is sufficient for you emotionally. He's sufficient for whatever spiritual gap you feel. He's, he's sufficient for you with your financial needs. He's sufficient for you if you're lost vocationally. El Shaddai, he is sufficient for you. So church will continue here in a way. We're going to move into our ministry time. You'll be released, but members of our prayer team will come forward. And if you need to be ministered to this morning, come forward and allow the Holy Spirit. This morning we sang the song, we welcomed the Holy Spirit here. We asked him to fill the atmosphere. You know this atmosphere is not empty. It's not empty space. The presence of God fills this space. He's here. He's wanting to minister to you. And so come forward or pull aside a life group leader or a friend. Get the prayer that you need this morning. Get the ministry that you need. Now may the love of God, may the intimacy with Jesus and the comfort of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.